This morning, I want to begin by sharing the story of Dr. Kate Bowler. Kate is a New York Times bestselling author and associate professor of the history of Christianity at Duke Divinity School. In her memoir, Kate says that she grew up on the prairies of Manitoba surrounded by Mennonites. Early on at her Anabaptist Bible camp, she came to know about the poor carpenter from Galilee who taught that a good life was a simple one. In her experience, many Mennonites might have ditched the plain clothes but kept their concern for the greediness of modern life. She knew of grandpas that would paint their bumpers black because chrome was too flashy and a little sinful. And that for many, the most sacred words outside of scripture were, I got it on sale. But as Kate became an adult, she started to hear stories about a different kind of Christian faith. One with a formula for success, commonly known as the prosperity gospel. It's often the gospel that you hear from televangelists. That if you give money to the church and to God, then God will reward you with blessing upon blessing. In her research, Kate discovered that this expression of faith encouraged people, especially the leaders, to, to buy private jets and multi-million dollar homes as a way of showing how much God loved them. But she also found believers desperate for escape. She writes, Believers wanted an escape from poverty, failing health, and from the feeling that their lives were leaky buckets. Yes, some people wanted Bentleys, but more wanted relief from the wounds of their past and the pains of their present. People wanted salvation from bleak medical diagnoses. They wanted to see God rescue their broken teenagers and misfiring marriages. They wanted talismans to ward off the things that go bump in the night. They wanted a modicum of power over the things that rip their lives apart at the seams. The prosperity gospel at its heart is a theodicy, an explanation for the problems of evil and suffering in the world. Theodicies seek to answer the questions that take our lives apart. Why do some people get healed and others don't? Why do some people leap and land on their feet while others tumble and fall? Why do some babies die in their cribs and some bitter souls live to see their great-grandchildren? The prosperity gospel looks at the world and offers a solution, a guarantee that faith will make a way without fail. But when suffering and tragedy come out of nowhere, the prosperity gospel starts to struggle. For Kate, after studying the prosperity gospel for years, she started to face those realities of struggle firsthand. While writing her dissertation, Kate's arms mysteriously stopped working. They just started to go limp. And she went to doctor's offices appointment after appointment, month after a month. Some said that it was because of too much yoga. 
Others said it was all in her head. Eventually, she found a physical therapist trained especially for musicians that managed to find her problem. At the same time, Kate and her husband started to experience the loss of a pregnancy and then a time of infertility. Eventually, her life got back on track as she gave birth to a healthy son and was offered tenure at her university. Then, two years later, it all came crashing down as she was diagnosed with stage 4 colon cancer at the age of 35, and she was given months to live. Kate's story that I have shared comes from her memoir entitled, Everything Happens for a Reason and Other Lies I've Loved. She tells her story of making sense out of her life and faith after her cancer diagnosis. What tends to happen in our, is that we come in, when we come into experiences of suffering, lots of times our faith gets reduced down to what's called bumper sticker theology. Those sayings that sound biblical, but aren't always biblically sound. Two of the most common are our questions for today. I wonder, does everything happen for a reason? And does God not really give us more than we can handle? And then what are the biblical basis for these sayings? To address our questions today, we will first dig into suffering and God's sovereignty as we listen to the story of Job. Then, as we come to our our own struggles and the point of no return, we hear the cries of anguish from the psalmist at the end of their rope. Lastly, as we seek to respond to these hard questions, we look for how deep faith and trust can carry us beyond the bumper stickers and into the arms of Jesus. First, the question, does everything happen for a reason? For me, asking this question immediately draws me to the topics of suffering and God's sovereignty. It goes back to the same theodicy that seeks to answer the question, why do bad things happen to good people? Theodicies operate on a few basic assumptions, and then they ask a simple question. First, God is all good and all powerful, and therefore all knowing. Second, the universe and creation was made by God and exists in contingent relationship with God. Third, evil exists in the world. And fourth, why? Notice what this problem suggests. It begins with the assumption that God wants to eliminate evil. And if God is all good and but not all powerful or all knowing, then perhaps God doesn't have the ability to intervene on every occasion. Likewise, if God is all powerful and all knowing, but if God is not all good, then perhaps God has a mean streak. And if God is somehow all these things, but the universe does not exist in relationship with God, then God has little to do with evil, even though God's design of the universe can still be faulted. However, if God is all good and all powerful, why does evil exist? 
It is in all of this that saying everything happens for a reason works to highlight God's overarching sovereignty in the midst of suffering and evil. Scripture is not silent when it comes to the question of God's sovereignty, and there are too many passages to name them all. First Chronicles 29 says of God, you rule over all. Psalm 15 says that God does all that God pleases. And at the same time, we see that God's sovereignty is in light of God's character. God is not just in control, but also good. And it's when these realities come clashing together that make the question so complicated. And that's the same thing that makes the book of Job so complicated. As the story of the book of Job begins, we are introduced to a righteous man and a wager between God and the Satan. The Satan in the book of Job is a title rather than a name. In chapters 1 and 2, the word Satan always appears with the definite article. Essentially, the, the Satan's job is to investigate human beings and report on their activities. In many ways, it's probably best translated as accuser or almost a prosecutor. Chapters 1 and 2 of Job are the setup for the meditation on suffering that comes after. The story of Job should be read as a parable and not necessarily a historical account. The figure of Job seems to have been known in ancient Israel as this paragon of figure. So the authors use this legendary figure to frame a story as a poetic core for the book, the meditation on innocent suffering. Even the book seems, the beginning of the book seems to signal this with the long ago, far away character of the story. There once was a man who lived in Ooze. Nobody knows where the land of Ooze was. And so the story is not rooted in history. Nevertheless, it asks important questions, including Satan's. Do we love God for what we get out of the, for what we get out of the relationship? Or do we love God for who God is? The patient Job of the first few chapters give, gives way to an anguished one as he proceeds to lose all his possessions and then all his children are killed. Then he is cursed with diseases and his health suffers. And then his wife leaves him. I think at one point she even calls him smelly. Eventually Job curses the day of his birth. His friends, who started out well with offering him a comforting presence for the first week, now begin to offer him advice instead. They claim that the innocent don't perish, but Job's experience and ours says otherwise. Job's friends say that suffering is a result of sin, that Job must have done something wrong to deserve such suffering. Job's response is a little bit more honest. He laments. He calls a spade a spade. He holds on to his integrity, knowing that he has done nothing to deserve this. He speaks to, directly to God about his suffering 
and holds God accountable to God's promises. In this, he echoes the psalmist. As the story goes on, Job's friends are useless theologians. They talk endlessly about God with never speaking to God directly on behalf of their friend. Job is more direct. He begins by speaking about God and then moves more and more to speaking to God. In the depths of despair, Job experiences moments of inexplicable hope, or at least moments of hopeful longing. God will hear. God will answer. Such longing is based on Job's faith and his experience of God's care in the past. His most fundamental hope is this, that he will see God. Job ends his speeches with a long oath of innocence and calls on God to answer him. And then after some speeches by another friend, Elihu, God does indeed answer Job. God shows up and then takes Job on a whirlwind tour of the cosmos, displaying creation in its wildness and beauty. And there is much as one can say about these speeches from God. For one thing, humanity is hardly mentioned in them. There are, in fact, several passages that suggest that humanity is not the center of creation. God seems to take delight in exactly those creatures and those places in which humanity has no control. The sea, the wild animals, and Leviathan all have intrinsic value that has nothing to do with their usefulness to humanity. In all of this, God names this special place in creation for the forces of wildness, including the sea, which in the ancient Near East is this symbol of chaos and uncertainty. But God also somehow places boundaries on them. The world is not fully allowed to descend into chaos, but neither is it rigidly controlled by its creator. God gives creatures' freedom to be who they were created to be. And that freedom is a great gift to human and to animal alike. In this vision of creation, the world is not a safe place for human beings, but it's a world of beauty, and the creator delights in it. Importantly and unfortunately, God never directly addresses Job's suffering. But in this vision of creation, Job's understanding is expanded. He's invited to take his eyes off himself and his suffering and to see the world around him. He's invited back to life again after great suffering. And after the, in the last chapter of the book, he accepts that invitation. Job responds by recanting and by acknowledging that he spoke of things that he couldn't fully understand. The world is chaotic and disordered, but not to the extent that Job said it was. And then God is not overly vindictive and only concerned with human sin, as he had argued. God's concern for the world and humanity is far more expansive than Job imagined. Humanity has a place in the world, but it's not what Job or his friends said. They're not the sole recipients of God's attention. 
God's concern is for all of creation. But in this, Job's hope has been fulfilled. He had seen God. In the story's epilogue, Job's fortunes are then restored. He, and presumably Mrs. Job, have more children, and he gives his daughters' names befitting of their great beauty and an inheritance along with their brothers, which was unheard of in a patriarchal world. In other words, Job learned to govern his world in the way that God governs the world, with great delight in his children's beauty and freedom. And like God, Job gives his children the freedom to be who they were created to be. Though we might find the end of Job's story unsatisfactory, Ellen Davis suggests that the one question one must ask is not how much or how little did it cost God to give Job more children, but what did it cost Job to become a father again? After all his suffering, Job chose to have more children. He chose to live again, even though he knew all too well the pain that living and loving entailed. Such a choice then stemmed from his fierce faith in the God of life. As we come to the end of Job's story, we don't get a satisfactory answer. The problem of innocent suffering is still unaddressed. But Job still provides us several faithful responses. Speaking to God honestly and directly, trusting that God will answer, risking living and loving even after great pain, delighting in a world that is beautiful and wild and risky, trusting in the faithful God who created and still sustains that world. Job's story, in part, provides the answer to both our questions for today. There is no easy answer when it comes to suffering and God's sovereignty. Even the answers we initially find for the statement that God won't give us more than we can handle are more complex than they initially seem. While we might be able to point to 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 12, to show that God won't overbear us, the Apostle Paul makes it clear that he's only referring to temptation that are common to us all. For Paul, temptation are related to our choices and the decisions and the things we have control over. However, suffering in the world, especially when it comes out of nowhere, is outside our grasp. This reality can cause us to struggle in our suffering and to bring us to the places that, where we hit the point of no return. Along with the examples of Job then from Scripture, I turn to the psalmist. Psalms come in a lot of variety and genres and most offer praise and worship to God. However, there are a handful that cry out and lament in anger and in pain and in suffering. As the psalmist struggles with life, most often they move from their pain to remembering to where God has been faithful in the past to eventually praising God. But there are still some psalms where they never get to that point. 
Psalm 88 is an example. Daily I suffer your terrors. Sometimes psalmists exaggerate their circumstances to make their pleas to God stronger. But in Psalm 88, this person speaks from desperate circumstances and the depths of misery. They are sick, isolated from community, and near death. The writer sees himself as good as dead, counted among those of Sheol. While no part of creation is outside of God's reach, the ancient Israelites believed that Sheol, the place of the dead, was a place where you were fully cut off from God. The psalmist goes further and assigns their personal sorrows to God. Since family and friends have turned against them, surely God has as well. In verses 13 through 18, the psalmist closes their ment with a cry and a plea for divine aid. It's a grim renewal of their cry and serves to remind us that throughout the ages, everything has depended on God's mercy. Our questions for today wondered about two of the most common statements when it comes to bumper sticker theology. Everything happens for a reason, and God won't give us more than we can handle. Responding to the truth and biblical support for these questions is complicated and paradoxical. Unequivocally, I declare that God is sovereign over all things and is in all things. At the same time, the world is fallen, messy, broken. In many ways, while God is still sovereign, Satan has his hand in the world. And that means that sin, suffering, and struggles will come to all of us. Especially when it comes in those moments where it seems unfair and unjust. That's simply a part of the world that we live in. So one can indeed make the argument that we are given more than we can handle, at least without God. And that there aren't always greater plans or purposes at work when we face suffering. And yet, even when the suffering doesn't make sense, God is still sovereign in all things and through all things. Today we have faced hard questions with hard, complicated answers. But the response for me is clear. In short, it's continued faith in God. Not a cheap faith, though. One that is only reduced to platitudes and bumper stickers. But a faith that is deeper. One that is honest and real with our circumstances and situations. One that cries out and acknowledges that life is unfair. Life is unjust. One that acknowledges the reality that, yes, we can struggle, and that we have hit the point of no return, and that we need help and cannot do it alone. In his book, Stride Toward Freedom, Martin Luther King Jr. offers testimony of a point in his life where he came to this. Sitting at his kitchen table at midnight, exhausted, wondering how he was going to do all the work laid before him. Wanting 
a way out. In his words, that would not make him a coward. Dr. King, drinking a cup of coffee, began to pray out loud. After beginning his prayer, he cries to God, I am at the end of my powers. I have nothing left. I have come to the point where I cannot face it alone. And he says at that moment, I experienced the presence of the divine as I had never experienced him before. I hold up the stories of Dr. King and Dr. Boulder as testimony and witness to a different kind of faith. One that is rooted in a response that in the German is called Gelassenheit, better translated in English as yieldedness. In my opinion, this is sometimes the best response that we can give to a world that is filled with unjust and unfair suffering. We do our best to survive and let ourselves be yielded into the trust and faith that even in the midst of suffering and struggle, God is still sovereign. That somehow, in the mess and brokenness that we face, somehow, some way, God is present here with us, with me, with you, in our suffering. Somehow, we are not alone. Responding to our suffering and struggle with yieldedness, trust, and faith is to live into the words of Jesus from Matthew 11. Come to me, all you who are weary and carrying heavy burdens and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Praise God, and may it always be so. Amen. Amen.